Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Hey, Ian, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm I'm very excited that we have follow up, or I think I want to call it feedback negation. <laughs> feedback back feedigation. How about that? Um, okay. I think we might end up needing a slightly better word. You don't than like that. you don't like my terrible pun about machine learning, Ian. I'd live for your approval on my terrible puns about machine learning. <laughs> I mean, backward feedigation. So, so I I would love a good pun. You're not on get, machine not gonna, learning, no. but like that one just does, doesn't quite get there. I'm sorry. Have you met me? <laughs> I mean, I mean, why not just call it? Feedback propagation. Back feed feedback. I like back feed pop, propagation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, we have some follow up from the the last episode. Um, Dan um, writes to us, and I think we'll we'll read um, some of what he's got here. Um, you know, suffice us to say, he's an early data scientist who um, is building what parts of his data infrastructure he can, um, but there's no data engineers at his company. Um, yeah. And he's worried about the things that I think that I said, um, which is if you hire a data scientist to do data engineering, then you get exactly what you deserve um, from Dan. Clearly, I'm just building a fantasy land that won't scale. When is the right time to transfer my work to these scalable platforms? Yeah. And I, I also do want to, you know, like cite some specifics from his email here. Let's see. Um, he uses Anaconda Navigator to query SQL from within Python, which is a long, long way to run for writing SQL queries. Um, and I can get a colleague with no programming experience running on the scripts on their laptop in under an hour for no added cost. Plus, Stack Overflow has a solution to every problem I encounter. Um, yes. Yeah. And so, so, so part of his question is. Uh, their their tech stack is set up to use Azure, and he is wondering. And he has found things like Databricks to be heavy overhead. First off, thank you for writing in, Dan. Uh, yeah, this it. this was very exciting for us. Yes, you shouldn't feel like you're living in a fantasy land. Um, you're doing the right things, right? Like it's it's hard to find good data engineers. It's hard to hire them from the start. Um, you've got to do the best you can with what you've got. You're doing the best you can, Dan. <laughs> there's there's two things that you have to worry about here, or you have to be honest with your organization about. One is you're you're creating tech debt. Um, it doesn't sound like you're creating a ton of tech debt, but you are. And I actually think that that's the less important part of it. There's a tax that is being paid on every insight right now that is like the the amount of time it takes someone other than you to understand the insight or do some basic uh, analysis or put numbers together or just know what stuff are. And that's where the data, like the underappreciated side of data engineering is, is that they can work to make that um, cheaper. Like they can make it so that it's like it's not an hour to uh, to get the scripts running. That it's just it just happens, or that you can use SQL in a web interface and it immediately returns um, results. Uh, so it's it's not like people think of data engineering as a strictly problem solving exercise, and what it does is it makes uh, being data informed or data driven just that much easier. 
And as long as that's not happening, like you're kind of a slightly worse company in ways that you don't uh, necessarily know about. That's that's basically my take. Is you should be out like you should do the things that you're doing, um, but you should be like there's another world out there that like actually we probably can't even like grapple with um, until we make the actual appropriate investments in this. Yeah. So I I mean I would say like so so reading this. The thing that really kind of stuck out at me was so so first of all, I mean for the uh, I, I, I agree with Otis, you're doing nothing wrong here. Um, like you know you've got to do the best you can with the tools you have uh, and your your first job as a data scientist is to create value for for your business uh, and if the avenue that you have to do that today is your anaconda scripts on your laptop, like so be it, go for it. Um, the 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 question around like, well, when is the right time to move to the more scalable platforms? Uh, that was a, a little harder for me to reason about because uh, it, it's kind of contextual. Uh, and when I say contextual, I mean like what stage is your company at? Uh, because in... It sounds like it's very early. Uh, yeah, like if you're, if you're like super early, uh, meaning that like you're still kind of searching around for product market fit and you're the only data scientist and you're likely to be the only data scientist for the next two years. And then on top of that, there's only like one operations person and two engineers. And that's what the team is going to look like until you guys find product, product market fit you probably don't need to do anything differently than you are doing uh, other than version control if you're not doing that. Um, so, like, I mean, one question that I would ask is, like, well, how are you getting your scripts over to somebody else? Because uh, if it's like, well, I'm putting them on a thumb drive and then sticking it in their laptop, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, it, it, like, you kind of want your stuff in centralized version control so that when you eventually write or make a modification to a script that breaks, you can roll it back easily. Um, or when someone else makes a modification to one of your scripts that, that, uh, uh, that, that breaks it again, like, they can roll it back easily. Um, but, you know, in terms of, like, moving to scalable tool sets, like, like a lot of that is really company dependent and then it's also a matter of like okay well what are what are the right tools for you at your company it could be that something like databricks is legitimately too heavyweight for the problems that you all are trying to solve and you should be using something else um, but but that's kind of how I how I would look at it um, in terms of, of transitioning your own tool chain um, at the point when you start, uh, when when you've got a second data scientist there, uh, is the time to start thinking about well, what tool chain are we going to use together? Because you then like like on top of sort of the operations people or product people who are kind of consumers of your work, like you're going to be working with another person, and you like having that common tool set will keep the two of you in sync. Uh, and so I, I, at that point, like scripts running on your laptop, like I, I, I would, I would probably look at move, moving, moving away from that, uh, at, 
at that time. Yeah, I think I think there's two there's two ways of thinking about scale, um, and I think we, we might have different opinions about this, but I think the there's scaling uh, by adding more data scientists to the company, and then there's scaling by adding more people to the company. Yes, and I think the one where you want to move faster, you want to be ahead of where, like, you want to do things before you need it, is scaling to adding more people. Yes, that's right. Um, Because that stuff rarely falls into the bucket of, like, we're doing, you're doing work that you're going to throw away because the company didn't succeed and, like, that wasn't directly contributing to the company not succeeding. So, I think stuff where you're cutting down on the amount of time it takes to share the results from your analysis you should push for like push for that early yeah the other like the other side of it the like adding adding data more data scientists and more is one where i feel genuinely split um on one hand the like i think it's good to have like a weak anthropic principle of your company of like making actions as though it is going to succeed mm-hmm. um because kind of there's there's a decent chunk of them that's like well, what's the, what's the point of anything <laughs> if you don't have some reasonable like uh, prognosis about the likely success of your company? Point is, is like the the engineers that are your company are making choices now without someone who speaks engineering yeah. consulting on them, and in a couple of years, if you're moderately successful, that can be real like it can like it, it can be too late to undo those choices. Um, so I like I do think that people should push for data engineering more like earlier than they they currently do. Yeah, I agree just with because that. it is it's useful to have someone who speaks statistics to a degree, speaks data fluently, and speaks engineering fluently, in order to like make sure that the year two of your startup, if you get there, or year three, is not like a stressful tire fire for the data science department. Yeah, I mean the the thing that I would say is, is that like regardless of whether you're on Azure or AWS, or GCP, or I don't know why you'd make a different choice than those three, but there are other things out there. Obviously, like, companies have have path dependence, and so, like, there are, you know, there are certain things that will get, that, that you'll be locked out of with each one of those choices, but the tools that you get to use are, for the most part, independent of those, uh, and so... You know, the, the other thing that you should be thinking about is, okay, like you're going to have to move away from this Anaconda Navigator world at some point. Like, what do you want to move into? Because if you, you know, if you try Databricks and you don't like it, like there's a number of other, uh, there's like a number of other products out there that you could choose, try them, and 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 then advocate, like, like understand the requirements around what that what that product is supposed to do for you and your company, uh, and then advocate for a choice for yourself. It doesn't uh, like especially if you're early on, uh, like that, that. Those lines of of uh, uh, of uh, communication uh, with with your leadership who can actually make the buying decisions uh, are usually fairly open uh, if you're if you're at a decently structured company it's all it's also an opportunity to use some sophistication to your benefit and other people's where that choice i think a lot of data scientists make two mistakes they are like when they're they're making like they're making the advocacy for tools they're either too focused on their own workflow Mm -hmm. 
where they want to, you know, they want to use the fanciest thing available and have all of the tools at their disposal, or they're too focused on the on the customer workflow, where it's like where it's very drag and drop. But like when people have questions about whether the data is accurate, you're kind of helpless. So working through that whole product cycle of we're going to make a decision based off of this data. At some point, those decisions are going to be wrong, and we're going to want to revisit whether the data was wrong or we were. Um, how's that going to work? Yeah. Like that's like it's really critical that like you actually think through the whole thing like a product manager would to yeah. say like what's the what's the thing we're going for here, and what what is it going to look like to do this, and then what are the failure cases, and what do we like how do we know what that's going to look like? Yeah. And there's products there are products out there that will fit your your use case. Like I like you're not going to love them. Um, they're they're going to have flaws, and you have to. Like, especially once you get started down this path of trying to think like a product manager for these early company decisions, you're going to have to distinguish the, the well, this thing doesn't work. Like, it really doesn't satisfy the use case versus the part where you look at a product and you look at the way that the, the choices they've made and you just want to scream, why are you like this? Um, <laughs> which, you know, is more of an aesthetic, like, feel to uh, to the decisions that they're making. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just to kind of put some of this in, like, in like more concrete terms, um, I mean, I, I I think like the way that I would be thinking about this is not like, well, what do I need? What's going to make me the most comfortable? It's really like, what does the business need right now, and what is the business going to need six months from now? Um, I can tell you for for us in. Uh, in the early days at Clover, like we had to try to figure out like which of these platforms we were we were going to use, um, and at the time, uh, we ended up. Uh, uh, I mean, we we looked at a bunch of different things. There was there there was a uh, one of the like Anaconda, Jupiter notebooky products. Oh, I remember that phone call. Yeah, which which like they were just. Uh, they were not mature enough yet as like an enterprise platform for us for us to use them. Um, so so we ended up kind of comparing uh, Looker and Mode uh, to each other. Like the, the, they were kind of our uh, uh, our uh, top candidates. Uh, and and the reason was that we knew for us uh, we we were going to be uh, a, a, a very operations heavy business. Which essentially meant that people were gonna need real time access to to data to essentially see like how are things going and like this specific niche that I am trying to do something in right now, uh, what do the metrics like like what do the metrics on that uh, look like today? What did they look like yesterday? Uh, and with the operational complexity that we had, we also knew it was going to be like really, really hard to kind of nail down what the data models for that should sh- should look like. So, so we knew that our ops folks and our data scientists were going to need a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of like digging results out of out of the data. And so then we looked at those two platforms. Uh, Looker was was like. You know, definitely the it, it was winning at the time, and in terms of what what other companies in our area uh, were using, and the thing that we ended up finding was uh, was that uh, Looker. Uh, so so for Looker, the data models were first class, so you kind of needed to know what those looked like, 
uh, and the ad hoc analysis, so the the the, the SQL window uh, kind of like sat sat below that in in like the product priority. Whereas for mode, uh, SQL was was first class for for mode. They they were basically just like a giant SQL editor. Uh, if you wanted like good data models in your in your database, like you had to do that yourself. The product did not force you into into that mode of operation. But for us, that turned out to be the thing that the business needed, especially at at uh, at those early stages. And so, like that's how we made that decision. We we were really looking at like oh, what are the requirements here? What do we think our teams are going to need to do over the next six to twelve months? And then like made a choice based off of that. Uh, now we have like multiple workflows. So there's data scientists who use mode as, as their kind of primary. There are other ones uh, who use our custom custom libraries and notebooks. And then, uh, you know, and there, and there are still others who pull data into Microsoft Excel and, and, and do some financial analysis that way. Uh, it kind of depends on like what exactly it is you're trying to do. But for me, in, in, in the beginning days, like would I have chosen mode? Certainly not for personal projects. <laughs> like it's, it, it doesn't fit, fit the workflow that I like, but it's definitely what the, what the company needed. You know, full disclosure, like we're both, we both have like a lot of connections with mode, so we don't want to turn this into the mode, mode yeah. sponsored podcast. <laughs> um, but like the thing that we were going for is we wanted like to buy something that gave us like that gave the business user like more access that also had replica like had some replicability yeah. both looker and mode had well like, and and had some strong use cases around yeah. that well, um and there are other there are other software that, that accomplished yeah. the same thing well and and flexibility for the data scientists right too. and then the assumption is when you're doing heavy statistics and modeling and machine learning you can like those are projects you don't do as often as the interfacing with customers thing as a team, like even though individual data scientists yeah. are going to that. You can, like, you have to, like, automate the parts of the workflow that you do the most frequently. And then you also have to, like, count, like, you have to say, like, well, the people who are going to do this are going to be more motivated to find their own technical solution. And the people who do this other thing are not going to be motivated to find their own technical solution. So you can find something that's sustainable and um, auditable and, like, you know, adds a higher level, like, degree of replicability to those everyday analyses that you can buy off the shelf or have an engineer spin up something quick. That's the decision you want to make it kind of fits the theme right yeah no this is a big in, theme for us in terms of like tool chain and workflows and like how do you actually do stuff mm -hmm. because like i i think as well like that 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 the machine learning kind of workflows is kind of instructive here too because like that's actually a place where like the tool is not really going to help you uh, insofar as like it looks a lot more like like a software engineering development process, and like there aren't tools for that, right? It, at least not in the same 
vein, right? There's, there are. Yeah, right. They are fraudulent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like if you're if you're building machine learning models, you're probably working a little bit more like a software engineer, where it's like, well, there's a there's a code base that I'm developing on, and then I've got my like IDE or text editor, depending on which 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 side of that line I fall on. <laughs> and then like, I've got my build system and, and, and like all that, all that, all that stuff. Like, you know, I would say like, if you're building machine learning models, like you should really not, it, it, and, and your company is, is trying to use something like Databricks to do that. Uh, then you might think about re about reevaluating how things are structured. <laughs> like, let me stick up for Databricks a little bit. You know, like this brings brings up the mind, like there's machine learning automation, like companies. Mm -hmm. And I think Databricks does fall into that category, even though like I kind of use it for all sorts of things. And there's two classes of these companies. There's ones where they found some useful part of that process that they can sell you something and like pulling data down onto a cluster that is distinct from everything else so that you can prototype is like definitely like a useful part of the machine oh, learning yeah, great yeah and that's that's what databricks yeah. is like everything else databricks does is kind of like uh i don't care yeah. <laughs> like that's the part where i'm like oh wow that's super useful and if i did even more machine learning than i do uh yeah. i don't do any um then i would use it even more so that's like that's like the good side of machine learning automation because you can actually pull that into di several different workflows and i've used it for doing financial modeling in a way that's pretty useful too the ones where they sell you the whole stack of machine learning automation, I, my mental model for those is like, well, they put machine learning on the pitch deck because they thought it would get them more money, and then it did, and now they have to build it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, product market fit. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, thanks. Thank you for the feedback, Dan. Um, and hopefully, hopefully we've been useful to you. And, yeah, so we, we have another one from George. Um, and George is an engineer, and he was moved by our notebooks discussion. He liked our discussion, and he felt like we missed on something from an engineering perspective. That's, this is a good quote, so I'm going to read it. What makes notebooks feel limiting to me as an engineer is that you can build things in a notebook, but you can't build things with a notebook. And he also compares it to mode. Like, there's no... It is a playground, but there's no reasonable path to make it part of a system. I think that that's like that's dead on. That like if is we didn't definitely dead on. If we didn't make that clear, sorry, but like that's yeah. that's an opinion we both share. There's even more flaws than we covered when it comes yeah. to and I, like the Joel Roos talk is like exhaustive in the most positive sense on the flaws of using notebooks for yeah. you can't even really use that export function that they have yeah. to make something into production code because it, it's um, it's got ambiguity about which li like which version library you're using and stuff. Yeah, it, it, like it's a really really bad idea <laughs> and that's why I'm like even though I admire the ambition of the netbooks Netflix like we're going to turn <laughs> notebooks into a production system I feel like there's a fundamental flaw with the concept here of we've taken something without an, a visible route to production for years like as part of its product development style as part of all of the user flows that have developed using the damn thing and we're going to stick it into a production sure. cycle and I feel like it's it's um, it's the worst kind of like we're just gonna we're gonna you know it's the all right so I'm being hyperbolic like, <laughs> it's probably fine for Netflix they've probably built ways to handle this 
But like, no one should go copying this without like without a lot like of, an army of data engineers. W- yeah, without yeah. a lot of thought in yeah. into like how you are going to use notebooks and how you're going to overcome these yeah. flaws. Because like I was saying, even from an analyst perspective, the analyst version of pushing to production is sharing your analysis, and notebooks don't even have a good path to that. Yeah, which is a low bar. I feel like to get over. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll say, like, I I think George probably puts this about as well as a person could. Yeah, the quote is dead on. Yeah, like, like, that's really dead on. Like, I've always viewed notebooks as as a window into the system that I'm trying to do something with. Uh, and where, like, the work starts when I'm finished with my notebook. I'm not actually, like, doing work in the notebook, <laughs> but when you say work, you mean like now, now, I mean now, like, my insights need in, in, to integrate into yeah, a, a, yeah. A, a company or a machine or like yeah. there have become these little like information atoms after all of my work on the prototyping. Yeah, it's like now I found the thing I'm looking for, and I've got to go do something about that. Right. Either I've got to write a report and get it out to to a set of decision makers. Uh, I need to 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 build a new model uh, and get it into production. Like like the notebook is not my pathway to that. The notebook is my pathway for figuring out in my own head like what do I actually have to go do now. I would say like reading Joel uh, Joel Gruss's talk. Uh, the one thing that really stood out to me in terms of like all the things he said, like like where is the place where I would be dogmatic? Like the place where I would be dogmatic is you should not be importing notebooks into other notebooks. <laughs> like like that is just it, it, it's it, it is a gross misuse of that tool and is going to cause you so many problems down the road that like just because you can doesn't mean you should uh, and. And like that breaks that that uh, that paradigm of like of like when I'm when you're done with the notebook is when the work starts. I like that. Like the thing that that feels right about all of this. I think it's funny. Like you and I have like very different backgrounds. Like again, very similar to the rest of the world, but within data science. Like we use different methods. We use like we have different instincts on like where to start on things. But like what what you like unites us together is like a really strong feeling about like having your code be the system like the the like the part of the chain of custody. Yeah. And stuff like importing notebooks like offends us both in the same <laughs> in the same sort of way for the same sort of reasons where you're just like oh good here's this line that just does I don't know what. The- Fuck it does. <laughs> like from here on out, I have no trust or like idea of what about what is going on, and the whole thing seems ruined to me. Yeah, I feel the same way about when you take SQL and you turn it in, like you add the like the object oriented programming elements to it, and oh, I'm God. like, I just feel like I don't even know how. Like, there's no there's no rules. Dogs are marrying cats. <laughs> like, like I'm no longer dealing with uh, the like the language that works in the way that i expected um so yeah i i yeah i I have a very like that's also where i i verge on the dogmatic like for god's sake don't just import some like some some uh inscrutable thing into the middle of your ostensibly replicable analysis and screw it up for anyone who might be reading through it later um 
like what do you, what do you use on like a regular basis? Like yeah. give me give me an idea of like what your like the most in workflow and yeah. problem is because yeah. I think the problem does set up the workflow for people. Yeah, and, it's, and like you know, I, I think this is an interesting thing to go into because like if if I look at the meta theme of like these kinds of questions is really around like what tools should I be using and for what. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that there's a right answer for this. I think there's just a, like, it's some combination of, like, what are you comfortable with versus what are your, what does your business need? Right. It's some, like, there's the cost to you to produce the things is yeah. part of, like, part of that is just, like, what do you already know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I can give you kind of, like, two examples for myself. One was was in was in the earlier days uh, at Clover when my job was helping people understand what the data was saying. And then the other is like now when my job is is develop and produce the best machine learning models we can because the answer to that is different. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, so when when I had my first job there, uh, my sort of primary toolkit was uh, was 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 basically uh, a text editor, version control, and some kind of SQL editor with a direct connection to the database. Uh, uh, in our case, that was Mode. But the way that I look at it, like it really could have been anything. Like as as it happened, we like that product. It's got the visualizations built in. Great. But like I kind of viewed it as like this is a this is a SQL editor that has some URLs that I can send around. Yeah, uh, early early on there was like a, a database client, right? Like the uh, there was there was a database client. I, I mean that was like super early when like we had these kind of like janky SQL Server databases. Um, uh, before before we had figured out how to how to like migrate everything to be more to be more uh, like standardized in the way that startups actually operated it's, mm-hmm. it's a long story <laughs> um, but uh, um, but yeah I mean you know er, uh, early on it was like there was a database client and, and and some notebooks and like it was very clear that that was not gonna be great for anybody can I fly in here yeah and- so, like, a lot of companies start with SQL editors, and it's kind of a logical, it's, like, the cheapest thing you can get. I think I kind of want it to die as a category of product, though. Um, yeah, none of them are any good. Like, they, really, none of them are any good. <laughs> they often have, like, better text editing than what you would get in the web-based one, and I think, you know, that's, like, that is a big deal. Um, the problem is, is, like, there's no... Like the sharing at, like thing on SQL editors is just non-existent, and like SQL should be social. Like it's an accessible language. Like lots of people know it. It's not something that you're like. It's something you want to encourage your business teams to learn. And the like the fact that like there's no like execution record necessarily that you can surface to someone to distinguish the version that ran and produced this result versus the version that ran and produced this other result really creates a lot more havoc than people appreciate. Yeah, I I would say like I definitely so so this was the first company that I worked at that had a uh, a web-based SQL portal 
And I came to appreciate the value of that really quickly. Uh, and the reason is because, so, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a, like, in terms of the data science spectrum, like I fall a little bit more on the developer side than the analyst side. And so the workflows that I was used to was, you know, was, were basically more around like, well, you write code, you commit it to your version control system, uh, and, then it, and then anyone can run it, right? And that, that was what was sitting in my head of like, anyone can run it. And the part of like, that person has to have a working dev environment on their laptop or, or their computer, like never really entered into the equation for me. Um, and, and that's like the single biggest hurdle, right? Yeah. Like, oh, technology is so much easier than it looks once you get the dev environment set up. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but like it turns out like that is a huge blocker for people. Uh, and... Uh, and so, like, saying, like, oh, well, all the code is there, you can just run it, but by the way, it's, like, it's like predicated on this really opaque thing, and I'm going to give you a list of, like, of, like, uh, of, like, a hundred command line commands that you need to run to, like, get this thing up and running. Like, if you're an engineer, you don't think twice about that kind of stuff, but, like, everyone else in the world does. Uh and, and the thing that we found pretty quickly was when we were just on, like, a SQL editor and notebooks and, uh, and, like, and like SQL scripts uh, committed to GitHub, uh, like, the operations people, like, had no access Oh, man. To, and in, health, in healthcare, right? Yeah. Like, this is just an obnoxious assumption. Like, yeah. they don't even know what GitHub is. Right? Yeah. Like, that's, like, even engineers in healthcare are not necessarily on that type of version control system. Yeah, and and so, like, I, I came to appreciate really quickly, like, what it means to just, like, have data access and e even a crappy compute environment, like, available without having to do any of that setup. Like, that turned out to be really valuable for us because it basically meant that, like, okay, instead of telling a person, uh, if you want to know, like, what this result is today... All you have to do is pull the latest version from this branch and tunnel into the database and spin up your SQL editor and stick that in there and hit go. And. <laughs> but, and, and you've just said, yeah. And then the, the worst part is I feel like you've, you've had an opportunity to spoil like, uh, some, like someone's emotions are really bad right yeah. now because you just said all you have to do. And they're yeah. like, I don't even know what most of the words you just yeah. said are. Yeah. And like all they heard was all you have to do is wah, 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 wah. And like I just lost them right there. Yeah. Uh, versus like you know versus like sending them a URL and saying okay here's the thing just hit run whenever you want this updated. I've now used like several versions of like social data science products, and like it embarrasses me for data science. I'm embarrassed for data scientists that like really there's only. I've only encountered uh, the idea that like you save the like you send an execution versus you send the whole report mm. concept in a product once or twice. I think it's twice. I think Looker has that too, but has the the difference between like I built this report and you can run executions of this report with different parameters at different times, mm -hmm. and that lives at this URL, and then each of those executions lives at a different URL that you can send distinctly uh. Uh, because. That's a 
Like that's a yeah, big it's kind of a thorny problem. It you know, there's no replica. You are, you have fake replicability yeah. without like yeah, that distinction. Yeah, without that. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I would say for for me, like that was the initial tool chain uh, that I that I was using. Uh, but it was it really was pointed at like solving that particular problem of like my job was to help other people make decisions. I had to have a way to like get them the data support for that. The software engineering type workflow that I was used to like was not appropriate for that problem. Uh, the the uh, the like hey I can I can send you links over the internet like turns out turned out to be much more appropriate made my life easier it made their life easier and it like actually got the business to somewhere good that's a good lesson now you have a different like you have a different job and you do different things yeah so so now it looks a little bit different because i'm i'm tasked more with like helping our software systems like generate good you could think of it as like helping our software systems generate good recommendations mm-hmm. a human is only really going to take the output of that and and try to do stuff um but they don't need to see the process there's not a lot of digging that like they can that like they can kind of do uh i mean basically like I fit a bunch of risk models that will help us identify sort of people or, or populations that we should be trying to do something with. And if you think about, like, from a product perspective, what that looks like, like, that pulls in a lot of data, run, you know, basically the models then kind of, like, run and generate, you know, generate scores or, or, or uh, recommendations. The end user is the consumer of that. Uh, and there are things that they want to know about it, right? So, so, so they can ask questions about, well, why did the scores come out the way that they did? Uh, why this person and not that person? And, and, and I can, like, build into the products, like, kind of that diagnostic layer, but they're not going to be pinging the data sources themselves. So, so, so in this sense, like, I am actually building software and not, uh, uh, I uh, and and like not decisions. Right. So your 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 SQL has gone down. Yeah. The number of people that you share with has gone down and the technical ability of those people has shot up. Well, by and a lot. so so I would I would put it this way. The the number of people that I share the work with has gone down. The number of end users has gone up. Yeah, that's significantly. a critical. That, sorry, that is a critical distinction. Yeah. So, like in in the business context of you know, the early Ian, you're sharing work with people who are making a decision. But like in a sense, you are sharing the work with them. Yeah, and the decision is not something you just arrive at. Like it is a collaborative thing. Yeah, and so like the number of like the average technical ability and the number of people that you're sharing the work with uh is large yeah and now moving more into the predictive space like you have you have to think about the like the outputs of your model or your you know the numbers that you're putting out that are going to surface out into the world or the sentences that those numbers will turn into like has gone up by a lot and you have to have like maybe a whole 
like UX or design team thinking, yes. helping you, <laughs> yes. helping well, you think about how that works. We have seen that firsthand, <laughs> right? But the number, like the number of people that you're actually sharing the work with, goes down by a lot. Whereas yeah. every person that like a product, like the product data scientist or the like decision scientist, it, like every project they're doing, they're sharing the work yeah. with someone. Yeah, like I mean, you can kind of think of it like in in the former case the end user and the person you're sharing the work with are kind of convolved together. And it's a finite number of people, but, like, they need to understand all the details of, like, what you did. And they need to, like, actually be able to run your work. So they're not, like, true consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, in my world as it is today, like, those people have a clear separation. So, you know, when, I, when I'm, like, looking at a model and trying to build a model... Uh, there's a very small number of people that I'm working across there, like maybe like maybe a product person and uh, and like a data scientist or two and 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 a data engineer, but all like kind of deeply technical. Uh, and, but then the number of end users that that gets served up to is much, much, much larger. But they don't need to to know the details; they just have to understand the outputs. Right, and there there are analogous like decision science workflows where you build a, a data tool. Yeah, where you're not like you're maybe collaborating with one person to begin with, and then you're like, okay, now how do I put product finish on this? Yeah, so that the rest of like especially at like large to medium organizations, I think for me at Microsoft that was like the exclusive workflow that I had where. I was working with the small product team for one part of Microsoft where I had like really great like highly technical collaborators and then like it wasn't that large a leap to actually put some more finish on it and get some polish on a report or analysis or a SQL query that I had that could turn into a tool that more than one like department could use and so then it's like oh now I'm in the product like now I'm in this like product business of servicing data insights to like this large scale of uh, of end users, and you do like man, it does give you some appreciation for like what front end engineering really is as a discipline, yeah. and how like and, and and what designers do. Oh my god, <laughs> I I feel like the the profession that I have the most like oh I wish I I wish I knew how to do that yeah. like is design yeah where like when you see good design and how it like just like completely breaks apart the human psychology of like what's the context you're arriving in what's the goal you have here yeah. how does this visual language translate to like this decent chunk of people like given the context and the goal like yeah. it's such a like it's such a beautiful uh process like also like how much when you get that stuff right it's like it's like a stress release yes right versus like a you know, a product that gets it wrong where, like, you're trying to use it and you're just, like, building why, why up are you like, like Why are you like this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you just kind of want to shake it. Yeah. Um, don't shake your products. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's also clearly a thing where, like, 10% is a huge improvement, yeah. right? Where it's just, like, you get a designer to look at your work and they go, like, why don't you not do this incredibly dumb thing you're doing? And they're like, I could spend, like, another 20 minutes on all of the terrible choices you have, but just this one. Yeah. Just not this one. And you're like, wow, this is just a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and like, you know, people also tend to hook into design, too. Like, that's the thing that you remember. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I mean, I, I still remember 
I mean, you know, I had a flip phone for many years, and then my first smartphone was was the Google Nexus One, which I which like I thought was a great phone. Another weird thing we had in common. I loved my Nexus One until it started shocking me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like, I love that phone, but the first time I like actually got. It, I like actually got an iPhone in my hand. I was like, oh, <laughs> like you, you know, it's just this feeling of of like of like of like settling contentment, <laughs> mm-hmm. which like I I I haven't had another product kind of like give me that like quite at that level. But like that's what good design does for you. Mm-hmm. And like every time I've gotten a new one, it's been the same. And so, like, you know, obviously with your data products, you're not quite going to reach that level. But, like, but like the design matters because, like, that's the thing that the end user is actually doing something with. <laughs> I, I, I got that. I got a similar feeling with the first sequel in a web editor, uh, which is, yeah. was just completely a hack day project. Yeah. But, like, I'd been working in consulting. Yeah. And like we we would make a folder on the intranet. I said intranet people, and then we would run like we would put data there, and then we would run um, SPSS queries, mm-hmm. like or no oh god, it's not a query. I don't know what it's called, but like you'd run like you'd take SPSS, you'd write weird arbitrary SPSS syntax, yeah. and then if people did things to the base file, which they often did, yeah, because it's in the intranet then none of your stuff would work or SPSS would like also just be unreliable and interpret your syntax in different ways from different runs. V V six underscore zero two one eight underscore final final for reels this time. You you beat me to the the, the punchline. Yeah. So you're like, again, like the thing that I was like, Oh my God, this keeps a record of execution that is distinct from the record of like, that is not simply the record of um, like, it's not dependent on, me remembering to to save the, the the record of execution, like it keeps a record of execution every time I run a query. I'm like, oh wow, <laughs> I don't have to remember to like like save this version of it. It just automatically does it. My work is not dependent on my fallible human like memory to do this thing. The replicability of it is just automatic. And I was like, this is not a way that I don't want to go back to the other way of doing <laughs> things. Yeah. So it, I mean. My my workflow right now is is essentially like almost in. If you looked at my laptop, it's like almost indistinguishable from from a software developer, like uh, other than my kind of cruddy code and the fact that there are notebooks in there. Um, but you know, basically, like like once I started building things, and, it, and I mean, I had done this in previous jobs, but like once I had started building things at my current job that were going to slot into software systems and not go to other people, uh, then you know, then it's a much more standard like text editor slash, slash IDE. I happen to use Sublime. Um, um, and but like we have a lot of folks who use PyCharm because we're a Python shop. Um, but it's like text editor slash IDE, uh, Git based version control, uh, and uh, uh, and then I I still use use notebooks again to like kind of just give me that scratch pad uh, because machine learning models are a combination of code and data. They're they're not just code. 
Uh, and so like having a window to the in-memory object that's actually holding the data, uh, I, I find is kind of critical, uh, at least for, 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 for my workflows. Uh, and, and the notebook gives me that. Uh, and so that's kind of what my setup looks like today. And, and you use Python to do, uh, so I think it's an interesting choice that you're using Python to do risk type analyses. Um, I mean, part of the reason for that is that we're not doing analysis. Well, you're, I mean, the, you are and, and not, sure. right? We but are, like we even, are not, yes. Yeah, like yeah. even, like, I, 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 take, I take issue with your distinction, <laughs> Like, you're using predictive models from Python to do yeah. risk analyses, and yeah. you're probably doing some version of, like, a Dodge and Cox. Uh, um at some point no never no well not so if it's strictly logistic then i then it's not an interesting choice no 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 it's, that. it is it is it is not um yeah it, i mean if i were doing this like just for 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 risk for like kind of population risk models like python would not be the best choice uh but for for individual based risk models like like where you want to track them down to a to a person uh and where you want to ingest a lot of of heterogeneous data uh i mean then you're you are solidly in machine learning land uh and and like those methods are built to be able to take in a ton of data and like do useful stuff with them like your your standard kind of risk modeling uh, methodologies, so your you know your Cox models, survival analysis, that that sort of thing, like it, they just don't do that natively. It's it's not that you can't get them to do that, but but they don't do it natively. Sorry, explain that a little more. Like you're saying that the that the the libraries in Python or the machine learning libraries don't do that natively. No, I so so basically what I mean is so there there aren't really like great Cox libraries. Uh, in Python, that yes, uh, <laughs> I right? can attest to that. <laughs> yeah, so like like Python has great libraries for neural networks and gradient boosting, uh, uh, which tend to be really the the two things that most people uh, are using these days. So like either tree based ensembles or deep neural networks is kind of what most people use. Um. And, and and Python has the best libraries for those. R, R has libraries for those too. You can use it, but it it it, it like that path. It, I mean, I I've, I've had people argue with me about this, and so again, like I'm I'm not dogmatic about it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, again, I think it's time for an official podcast dance. There's no right choice between yeah. like there's no the right choice between Python and R. Um, it depends on what you're doing, and it also created like I think. More than that, it depends on what the people around you are doing. Yeah, like yeah. the like, we definitely made choices at Clover to do stuff in Python that's not like easier to do in Python, but also like the only people who could review your code knew Python and not R. So yeah. like, what <laughs> do that? Like, yeah. it's better to have another human with eyes on it than to use the perfect library yeah. to do the thing uh, without anyone who could review. Your yeah. Code. Um, but but basically, so if you if you dig into the underlying uh, methodologies though, and, and kind of the math behind them that that make it work, uh, so tree based ensembles uh, can use a lot of variables. 
to generate their 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 uh, results. Uh, the the uh, uh, Co- uh, Cox models have some limitations uh, as far as that goes, um, and as well, like you get some uh, uh, some kind of like uh, sort of feature selection capabilities. Uh, not for free, but they, but like it's it's kind of built into the underlying algorithms. Uh, it, if you're using those machine learning methodologies versus if you're like building a Cox survival model, you need to do. You basically have to build a step before that to pare down your data set to the features that like you think actually matter. Uh, and you know, the, one of the one of the the things, at least in my opinion, that the machine learning approach gives you here. That is just harder to get if you're if you're uh, if you're using something like Cox, uh, is that uh, is that you don't have to be reliant on your knowledge of which data should be collected, uh, which essentially means like you can just build a giant collection machine and pull as much data as possible, uh, and then let the machine learning model start to distill down for you what matters and what doesn't. Now, now there's other costs that, that come with that, right? So you have to backtest like crazy. Uh, yeah, and this is not a thing you would do without a data engineering department. Uh, probably not. Or, or significant coding skills yourself. Yeah, yeah. You, are, you have a CS yeah. degree or something that, that proxies it reasonably well in this, in this category. Yeah, like, you know, basically, like, you kind of need to be a top-end coder to, like, build a good backtesting system but like that that's the thing you you end up having having to do and then if you're building risk models there's like <clears throat> there's like other stuff that you sort of are going to have to deal with like the fact that those models are not optimized for your situation and so we built a bunch of proprietary methods for how you handle the data to like get a tree-based model to give you a, a, a good result in, in, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of, of of like nailing nailing down a good risk metric, um, but but that's 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 part of the reason that like we use we use Python and uh, and and not R. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that we are basically out of time. We can talk about uh, my workflow at some later date. Yeah, I I think that would be interesting. I would like to know more about it. Um, you know, it's it's obviously different. Like it's you know, I could just say the word SQL over and over again, <laughs> and that might help. But it's not exclusively SQL. I do use R in Python too, uh, depending on the context. But yeah, we'll cover that later. Um, that's all for now. Uh, if you have feedback to give us, um, you can contact us at feed.back at smalldiffcast.com or get us on Twitter at of differences. I'm at Old Jacket on Twitter. Yeah, and I'm at IanBlue1. All right. Thank you for joining us, and stay salty, uh, data science-adjacent humans. <laughs>